Hello and welcome to Account Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture we're going to be talking about supply, demand, and equilibrium. We'll be discussing that familiar graph that most people probably think of when they think about economics. At the end of this we will be able to define and describe the demand and supply curve, describe equilibrium price and quantity, list factors that shift the supply curve and demand curves which will cause a change in the quantity and price, and then we want to explain the idea of efficiency. Three questions we want to first start off with when we think about economics. There's three questions that we want to answer. There's three questions that we want to keep in mind. The first question is, what should we produce as a society? We have a lot of resources. What should we put those resources towards in order to produce what and how much of that stuff should we produce? Second question would be, for whom do we produce this stuff for? Meaning, who gets to consume the stuff that we produce? How do we distribute what we have produced to individuals? That usually, that question usually comes in two forms, and it usually has to do with the idea of what's fair. Most people will say, well, we should distribute in a way that's fair, in quotes. But that term fair is very difficult to define, and many people define it in two ways. One of two ways being, what is fair is who's put the most into production that should be the person and or individuals that get the most in terms of the distribution, because that's what incentivizes production. That's one interpretation of fair. The other interpretation is that the people that are most in need, the people that need the stuff most, should be distributed what they need, and that would be fair. So those are the kind of the two extremes in terms of who should we produce for, and obviously the answer is probably, like many questions like this, probably somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, what is fair. And then the last question is, uh, who decides? Who decides what we should produce? Who decides who gets to consume what we produce? And this is an interesting question because if you ask a lot of people, if you talk about a lot of these ideas, we often hear this word they. They don't distribute it well. They don't dis produce the right things. They produce too much. And the question is, well, who is they? And who do we want they to be, ideally? And there's two going to be two kind of extremes here as well. One is a completely centralized uh, area where a small group of people or one individual decides what we produce and who they produce it for. And the other side is going to be a, a market-driven, where the market, meaning nobody really decides, it's going to be driven by market forces. We're going to, of course, focus here on the market forces, and we'll discuss later where market forces run into problems. So those are going to be the three questions that we want to take a look at. Now, considering this question of who decides these uh, questions, we have the centrally planned on one extreme, and we have the market on the other extreme. Now those are going to be two far extremes. Again, the centrally planned means that we have a small group of individuals that decides what we're going to produce, how much to produce it. And on the other side, we have the complete market, meaning we don't have a central regulated. The market in and of itself, the invisible hand we'll discuss, the supply and demand, the equilibrium price is what sets that. Now in real life, every country is somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. There's not really any country that's completely market-based. The U.S., you can say, has more of a market base. So if you think of this as a continuum between completely market and completely centrally controlled, the U.S. would be further to the right, in this case, if the market was on the right, and we would be further over there. The U.S. would be further over there, meaning market principles are more in place, and there's more of an effort, really, to put those market principles in, mainly because it's thought to be that those would be more uh, efficient but uh, there's going to be a lot of regulations involved. There's a lot of laws. There's a lot of centralized uh, involvement within the market as well. So it's not a completely market-based system. And on the other side, if we think about a country that's more centrally planned, like China, then we're going to say, yeah, there's a lot of central control. The central planning uh, does a lot of things. But 
We don't have a completely centrally planned area. They do still take advantage of market forces in different areas. So we're really thinking about, if we're thinking about different countries, we're thinking about somewhere on the spectrum between market and centrally planned. Now, before we get into just supply and demand, I do want to point out the pros and cons of what a market should do as compared to what a centrally planning should do and take a look briefly at the exceptions just so we have the idea before we get into the nitty gritty in terms of supply and demand. So efficiency principle is the first thing we want to take a look at. Efficiency principle means that the marginal costs are going to be marginal, are going to equal the marginal benefits. We always produce at the margin. We want to be in a society where we're producing where the marginal costs equal the marginal benefits for the society. And if we do so, we will be producing at an efficient area. Now the markets for the most part are thought to be more efficient, meaning if everything is in the market, in the costs, then the market will tend to be more efficient oftentimes than a command-based because the market is taking into consideration all these different factors within the market. Something that someone that was trying to do it all of themselves, you can imagine uh, if we had the old Soviet Union, we can imagine trying to centrally plan everything. If you're trying to centrally plan how many shoes are going to be made by Nike in the U.S. or something like that, that would be very difficult to do without market forces. The market forces uh, allow someone to, to basically come up with market prices through market forces and not have to centrally plan everything. So in most cases, the market is actually thought of to be more efficient. Now, there's going to be problems in the market, and the reason I want to point this out first is because when we look at the news and when we think about uh, issues that come up, we're usually thinking about the problems in the market, and the reason they're in the news, the reason we're talking about them, is because they are the areas where markets are having issues or having problems, and those are the areas where we have to think about regulation or government uh, involvement in some way or another because of these issues, and that's where really the debate is at. But we want to think, most economists think of it basically reversed because when we look, when we think about all the, all that kind of stuff, we start to think that markets are not efficient and we need more central planning overall, meaning central planning would be better overall. And usually it's the reverse of that. Most economists would think, well, the markets are more efficient in most areas and we then need to focus on those areas where they're not efficient, which of course are most of the areas that are going to be talked about. For example, if there are costs that are externalities or costs that are going to be public costs that are not in the cost of the firm, then those are types of things that are not being controlled by the market well. They're not being considered into this equilibrium price. For example, the common thing now is going to be pollution in terms of now we've got air pollution. Air pollution being something that's really not, if you think about it, on the company's income statement. If it were on the income statement, if it was an expense, lowering net income, lowering profit, then the company would have an incentive to drive it down. If it's not on the income statement, then the company doesn't have the incentive to drive it down. Those are areas where we have a problem. If you, see, if you hear a company that goes green and they're talking about the fact that they're going paperless, they're going to use less paper and put everything in the computer, or they're going green by, by using less energy, they're being more energy efficient, well, those are things that are like, okay, no, of course they're doing that. Why? Because if they have less paper, they're paying less for paper. It's on, it's on their income statement. They have an incentive to pay less for paper and go green in that way. They have an incentive to pay less for their utility bill. Of course, they're trying to lower the cost that they spend on electricity. That's on the income statement. That increases their profit. If we're talking about something not on the income statement, such as air pollution, uh, CO2 gases in this case, 
if those have a cost to society and they're not on the income statement, then they're not things that are being driven down just through market forces. Those are types of areas we'll have a problem. We'll discuss those more later, but I want to point those out now when we talk about the market so that we can think about the idea that markets are efficient for the most part. Most of the expenses are in the market, and if all the costs are in the market, we want to use market forces in order to be most efficient, and we need to think about those places later where we have some failures in the market. When we consider what a market is, we're talking about all buyers and sellers within a market. So the market is all buyers and sellers within the market, and the buyers want to have benefits from the goods. What is a buyer's incentive? They want to buy the goods and get the most benefit out of the goods for, of course, the least cost of those goods. The seller of goods wants to sell the goods for the highest amount of profit and thereby get the most profit for the goods that they are selling. Therefore, the buyers and the sellers have different objectives that are contrary to each other. And if they both have all the information and all the costs are involved in the buyers and the sellers are accounted for within the transactions, then they will self-regulate the market. Those two incentives will self-regulate the market and bring the market to equilibrium. That's going to be the basic idea of the self-regulating market, the idea of the invisible hand, the idea that no one needs to set the price. The price will be driven by these two factors, by these two forces working contrary to each other. Let's take a look at these actual curves and let's draw these curves. And we're going to have the demand curve first. So the demand curve is going to be a curve that's going to be downward sloping. We want to imagine the top half of the grid here. So we've only got one quarter of a full grid, meaning the price is going to be on the vertical axis. So if we're starting from bottom to top, we've got a line going from bottom to top. This is going to be the price of our goods. We're going to be talking about donuts. So I'm going to say this is the price of donuts. And we're going to start with $1, $2, $3 on the price of donuts and see what happens as that price on that vertical axis goes from the bottom $1 up to $10. And then we're going to see the horizontal axis. We're going to have quantity, the quantity of donuts going from left to right. On the left, we've got, you know, one donut, then two donuts, then three donuts going from the left to right. And if we were to then think about the demand, then if we we're going to try to plot what a demand curve would look like, we would think that, well, as the price goes down, we would want more donuts, assuming we like donuts, so assuming we're like Homer Simpson here and we really, really like donuts, then as the price of donuts go down, then we're going to buy more of them. So, for example, if we had a price of $8, we're going to say that he's going to, the market would have 16 donuts in this case, small market with 16 donuts. If the price goes down to $4, we would assume that more people would enter the market and the quantity that then could be sold would be 32 donuts. Now, the thing that's important to, to understand is that when we think about individuals, they're going to have different values of donuts for example uh if we think about homer simpson he's going to want a high a much higher price that he'd be willing to pay for a donut than the average individual so when the price goes down what's really happening is we're drawing more uh people that have the lower cost into the market we call this concept the buyer's reservation price it's the highest price that an individual is willing to pay for a good so if we had a very high price, then you've got people like Homer Simpson's in the donut market. And then as the price goes down, we're going to draw more people into the market. We know that Homer Simpson is getting more value because he would be willing to pay more for that. But we're drawing more people into the market overall, and therefore the quantity of donuts will go up. So when we think about the demand curve, we've got the price on the vertical axis from, top to, from bottom to top. 
we've got the quantity on the horizontal, and if we're looking at the demand curve going from left to right, it's pointing downwards. It's a downward sloping. We're going from left to right, and it's going down. Why? Because as the price goes down, then on the, on the vertical, it's going down. The quantity on the horizontal, left to right, is going up. We're selling more donuts. Intuitively, this makes sense. It makes sense that normal goods, if the price goes down, then more would be sold of them. There's going to be two concepts that account for this. One's going to be the substitution effect. One's going to be the income effect. Substitution effect. We're going to think, what happens if the price of donuts go up? What are people going to do? Well, eventually, people are going to say, hey, the price of donuts is too high. I'm going to substitute my donuts for something else. We might buy a Danish, or we might buy Pop-Tarts, or something like that. We're going to put something else in there for the donuts. So that's going to be one thing that happens. That's one reason that if the price goes up, then the demand is going to go down. And the other thing that's going to happen is there's an income effect. The, buy the buyer's overall purchasing power, what they could just purchase in terms of donuts with the income that they have, has now gone down. Therefore, they're going to purchase less of the donuts. What we've talked about so far is a, is a movement along the demand curve due to a change in price. Now, if anything other than price change, and notice what we're talking about is we're saying, hey, quantity is going to change when price change. That means we're going to move along the demand curve. If anything other than price change is that there's another thing that's going to affect demand that's not price, then what's going to happen is we're not moving along the demand curve. We are actually shifting the entire demand curve. So remember, we're imagining the price on the vertical axis, the quantity on the horizontal, and we've got this downward sloping uh, demand curve, meaning from left to right it's going down. We could shift it all out. If it all went out, let's say that there was some kind of health thing out there that said donuts are really good for you for some reason. Donuts are great. If you eat a lot of eat 12 donuts a day, you're going to live to be 100 at least. Let's say that's unlikely to happen, but let's say that happens. Well, then a lot of people might want more donuts, and that would mean that the entire shift of the curve would shift outwards. It wasn't due to price. Price isn't the thing that changed it. It's the fact that there was some health report that doesn't sound too uh, good to me. I, I don't really trust it so far, but it says that donuts are good, and that means everybody wants more donuts, and that's going to shift the demand curve out what that'll do is that for any given price people are going to want more of it if we were selling them for eight dollars and we were selling you know 16 of them now we're going to sell more because at any given price the entire demand curve is going to shift out now of course if the opposite happened if the health report came out and said something that's probably more likely that donuts are bad for you and they cause a bunch of terrible things to happen then people may shift the other way and they may move the whole demand curve in, meaning at any given price, people will buy less. So something is changing other than the price. Other things that could change, we could say the population went up. Maybe there's a lot more people in the market because population increased for whatever reason. Uh, so that would shift the demand out. And Or we could say that income has changed, possibly. People have more money in their pockets, therefore they're willing to shift out and they can pay more for donuts because they have more or less income. These are other factors that could shift the demand. Now let's move to the supply curve. So you're going to think about that same uh, graph where you have the price and the quantity, but you're going to erase the demand curve in your head. We're going to be thinking about the supply curve now. The supply curve is a little less intuitive, but it's not too bad. The demand curve, I think, is pretty intuitive, most of us being purchasers. On the supply side, we want the quantity that the seller is willing to offer at any given price, meaning we're representing what the sellers are going to offer at any given price. Now, when I used to first think about that, I used to think, well, what does that mean? The, the seller is the one that makes the price. 
So they, they're the one that set the price. And what you got to get in your head is the fact that when we're talking about a market, really the market basically sets the price. So if we're talking about an individual uh, seller, say we're selling individual seller of donuts, and I'm, well, they're entering the donut market. Well, if the donut market is really competitive, then the price is really set by the market. They don't have a lot of options. I mean, if we're thinking about like if we make hamburgers or something, well, there's a lot of hamburger makers out there. If we set a price that's really different than other prices, if it's a really competitive market, then we can't do that. It just won't work. We have to basically put ourselves in the market price. So we have this idea of kind of perfect competition when we're thinking about the, the sellers being price takers in this case, and then we're, we're talking about the total market in this case uh, being, being what would be supplied at different prices in the market. So the opportunity cost differs between, to, between sellers. So when, when, what are sellers going to sell? They're going to sell when what they can get is greater than the opportunity cost for them to produce it. So if we're talking about donuts, we're not just talking about the costs in the income statement, meaning the dough and the sugar and um, the grease and you know all that good stuff that goes in the donuts. We're not just talking about the cost of that stuff. We're talking about the cost of the stuff that they could have done. They could have done something else with their time. Those are the opportunity costs that we have to put in place when we make these types of decisions. Opportunity costs could differ based on different types of technology for the, what the donut production. It could differ based on just skill level in terms of the donuts. It could differ based on expectations, what the, what the individual thinks is going to happen in the long run. These are all types of things that could factor into different suppliers and what they interpret to be their opportunity costs when considering entering the donut market. Sellers are going to have a reservation price and that's going to be the lowest price the seller would be willing to sell the product for, meaning that's the lowest price they're going to be in the market for selling the product for. We're, remember, we're looking at our same axis, so we've got the price, so we're going from bottom to top in terms of price. Price goes from zero upwards in the y-axis, horizontal axis, and then on the x-axis from left to right, we've got quantity, meaning the, the donuts from one donut out, uh, two donuts, three donuts out, the quantity on the x-axis. If we think about the supply curve now, if we're reading it from left to right, it's going up. The supply curve is increasing from left to right. Why? Because as the price goes up, say if we were, had $4, meaning the market price is $4, meaning we're not setting the price as an individual firm. That's what the market price tends to be at $4. Then we're saying that the market uh, would have 16 units in this case. If the market price goes up, let's say to $8, then we're saying that the market quantity that would be produced, the suppliers would then produce 32 units. Why would this happen? Because more people, more firms, more companies would see, more people would see that there's profit to be made there, and therefore they would have more people enter the market. You can see these in things like coffee sales. You can see that, you know, as the coffee went up and people can see that uh, there's profit being made there, more entered the market. More coffee vendors will enter the market. We have more supply out there in terms of that particular product. Now, we have the same idea with demand where we're moving along the supply curve based on changes in price. When market prices changes, then the suppliers are willing to produce more or less in terms of supply. We also know that just like demand is, if we change anything on the supply side other than price, then we could have a shift in supply. So we could have this shift in supply, for example, caused by, let's say, an increase in technology. Say we had an increase in technology, making it basically cheaper to uh, produce certain things. That means for every, uh, for the same price, 
we're willing to produce more because of this increase in technology because we can do so at any given price. That would shift the entire supply curve. Now, when we think about the demand curve, it was easier to think about a downward sloping demand curve that shifts up and right when, when we're willing to demand more at any given price. When we think about the supply curve, it's upward sloping. When we think about it from left to right, it's going up. We're seeing it going up from left to right. When, when suppliers are willing to supply more at any given price, it's actually moving to the right. And you can think about it because the quantity is going up. Remember the quantities from left to right? So the supply curve shifting up from left to right, going up from left to right, has got to move to the right in order for the quantity to go up. And the reason this is less intuitive is because it it's kind of looks like it's below the other supply curve. In terms of price, it looks like it's underneath the other supply curve. But really, if you, if you graph it out, you see that the quantity goes up, and you can see that the price is going to be at the same price. We have an increase in quantity. So, so at a given price, the quantity will increase at any given price. The quantity will increase as the supply curve shifts out to the right. Uh, some of the things that could cause this, again, technology increases could cause the changes in input costs can cause this. So let's say the cost of sugar or the dough or whatever, if that gets cheaper, then that would reduce the supply cost. So they would be willing to produce more at any given at any other cost. If we had like minimum wage costs are often a big debate if they go up or down. If they go down, obviously, they would shift if minimum wage goes up or if the cost of labor, for whatever reason, regulations go up, then it's very possible that the supply curve will shift the other way. Taxes are going to be another thing. Uh, if taxes go up, then the supply curve could, could shift up to the left, meaning that the costs have go up and, and therefore they're willing to supply less at any given, uh, at any given price. Now, of course, if we put these two graphs on, if we put these two lines on the same chart here, then, of course, we have that downsloping demand curve from left to right. It's going down. That upward sloping supply curve from left to right. It's going up. We have that familiar looking X there. And we can see that, that where they intersect, that, of course, will be the equilibrium price. Those market forces driving towards that equilibrium price, that equilibrium price being where the production will ultimately be and where the quantity will also ultimately be. That, so that will drive the price and the quantity will ultimately be at equilibrium in a perfect market it's important to note that this concept represents kind of like a balance sheet where something sits at any given time it doesn't mean that things gonna, aren't going to change it think this is a conceptual picture of this is where we are this is a snapshot of where we are at at a particular point in time of course things will then change and when things change then the you know the the supply and demand curves will change and we'll have you know different equilibrium prices it'll be a fluid thing as time passes but any particular picture is of course at that given point in time conceptually. What if, for example, we think of a particular situation where the price happens to be above the equilibrium price for whatever reason. Maybe there's been a change, maybe it's a short run change that's happening and the price is above what the equilibrium price in the market. We can imagine our X downward sloping demand, upward sloping supply, and we're drawing a line on the graph now that is above that point where the X meets. <laughs> we're at above the equilibrium price. Let's say we're charging uh, a price of eight dollars and if we if we move that over and we say okay where does that run into the demand curve it runs into the demand curve at 16 units so we're having 16 don donuts in this case at eight dollars but if we continue that's not at the equilibrium if we continue to the supply side of the supply graph we see that there's 32 that are willing to be produced so the so suppliers in this case because we have a price above equilibrium are willing to produce more at that higher price 
but the demand uh, is not there at that higher price. So what's going to happen, of course, there's going to be downward pressure. There's going to be downward pressure to move this down towards equilibrium. What do we call that difference in terms of quantity? We're going to call that a surplus. Why does that happen? Because obviously the suppliers are going to make more than what is going to be demanded, which is going to drive down price. What happens if we imagine the opposite in our hypothetical here? For in the short run, we're saying, okay, for whatever reason, the price now is below whatever the market price is. Maybe it's a short run change that happened here. Let's say that we're saying the price is $4 and it's below equilibrium. So you can imagine the X and we're drawing a price on the vertical axis that's below the X. If we graph that out and we see where is it going to intersect with the, with the supply curve, we're going to say that the suppliers are willing to produce 16 units, 16 donuts in this case for $4. But if that's not at equilibrium, if we take that over to the demand curve, what are people going to demand at that $4? They're demanding 32 units. So in this case, what we're having is a shortage. We have a shortage happening, meaning suppliers aren't willing to produce what is demanded at this price because it's low, below equilibrium. What's going to happen? There's going to be market pressure to move up and the price to go up towards that equilibrium. Rather than thinking of the short-term changes where we have a price that's below equilibrium or a price that's below above equilibrium, this could also happen in terms of laws. We could have regulations that put in place, for example, having a price below the equilibrium. We call that a price ceiling. We could have a regulation that says, hey, we're, we have a price that says that you cannot charge for whatever good or, good or service that you have more than this price. And if that price is set below the equilibrium price, then that could have some effects on the economy. The major example of this would be rent control being an example of a price ceiling, meaning the equilibrium price is higher, but it's been capped. There's a ceiling. You can't go above the ceiling, even though the market wants to go above the ceiling. So, of course, when we think about prices of rent control, there's good intentions in terms of rent control, but there's going to be results that need to be considered when we're thinking about a market for rents. If we imagine our demand and supply curve, the demand once again downward sloping in terms of left to right and our supply upward sloping in terms of left to right, they're intersecting and we draw a line below that intersection, meaning the price is below the market price, then what's going to happen? Well, the, in the long run, we know that the supply in terms of renting apartments is going to go down because now the people, the, the suppliers are going to want to supply less at that lower price. And we know that in terms of demand, the demand is going to increase. If the price goes down, the demand is going to increase. What's that going to result in? In the long run, that's going to result in a shortage. In the case of rent controls, kind of interesting, this process can take longer than it would in other areas, however. If we put a cap on something that can easily be sold or traded, or if the renter could move to another place very easily, it might happen more quickly. But of course, when we're talking about a big asset like rent, that is a fixed asset there, then this process of the supply uh, going down is going to take some time and other things are going to happen in the short run. In the short run, you can see that what's going to happen, well, those apartments are still going to be there. The people renting probably aren't going to leave it or abandon it immediately. And we know that the demand is going to go up a lot. We're going to have a lot of people that are going to demand those apartments and want to move into those apartments and can't afford to move into those apartments at those prices. And the apartments are the same. There's still, there's, there's still enough this space that was there before. Now, the only fair way most people would say, well, how do you determine who gets to move in? Most people would say, well, the fair way is to set the equilibrium price and whoever could pay the price would then be the people that move in. If we take that option away, the question is, 
how is someone supposed to decide who gets to move into the apartment or not? What is the criteria on which a landlord would make the decision in terms of who's going to move into the building if it wasn't based on who pays the highest price? So you can think of different type of factors that might come into play. They might rent it to their family member who clearly couldn't pay the price before, but that now they can afford the lower price, which they're, they're forced to sell it for anyways. So they may have a practice of basically selling more to their family member, or there could be a practice of basically saying that they want to rent to someone who's going to do all the maintenance of themselves and have some agreements on those terms, who's going to take care of the place the best, which individuals will be best for you know the neighborhood. Those are the type of things that could end up happening if decisions are going to be made by something other than the market. They have to be made on something, and they're going to end up being made on something rather than the market. And then, of course, in the long run, the, the incentives for the landlords are not to keep up the building in the long run because uh, it, it's not cost effective to do so. And, that, and in the long run, the buildings could actually deteriorate to the point possibly where they're not even functionable, where landlords might even uh, leave or, or abandon the building in that case. And that, of course, will be where we have a result of the actual number of, of buildings being uh, rents out there going down, the supply decreasing. So those are the kind of examples of, of some really good intentions, of course, to set prices that people can afford, but some negative results that have really happened and why it really needs to be considered in terms of what is actually going to happen. How are people going to behave if we put in some of these policies? we got to think through those. So let's go through some of these shifts, and you probably want to just graph these out for yourself and just see what happens. Where's going to be the new equilibrium price? If we, if we think about the equilibrium price being a downward sloping demand, again, going from left to right, upward sloping supply, and we have an increase in demand, meaning the demand is shifting out from uh, left to right and up in terms of the graph, in terms of demand, well, what's going to happen, an increase in demand will lead to an increase in both equilibrium price and equilibrium quantity. So if you draw the graph out and you shift the, the demand out to the right, you'll see where those, the new intersection is and you can, you can tell what's going to happen to price and quantity. It's worth doing. You can do the same thing for the reverse, of course, if we're going to shift the demand inwards, meaning at every given price, the quantity is going to be less. So we have our demand is going to shift down to the left then a decrease in demand will uh, lead to a decrease in both equilibrium price and equilibrium quantity. Of course, the opposite would be what happens. On the supply side, we're going to say now we're going to keep demand constant. Demand, we got supply and demand. We're going to keep demand still, and we're going to shift now supply. An increase in supply will lead to a decrease in, in the equilibrium price and an e increase in the equilibrium quantity. So again, you can see this if you draw your supply curve and then you're going to shift it. You're going to shift it to the right. Again, it's going to be below, but you can see that the quantity is going to increase because you're shifting to the right. Quantity is going to increase. Price is going to decrease if we look at that new equilibrium. And then, of course, if we have a decrease in supply, will lead to an increase in the equilibrium price and a decrease in the equilibrium quantity meaning if supply moves up to the left, and I would think of it to the left, if you're looking at quantity, quantity, if your quantity is going down to the left, what's going to happen? That means we're going to have lead to an increase in the equilibrium price and a decrease in the equilibrium quantity. A couple more concepts to keep in mind, and we got the buyer surplus. A buyer surplus is a reservation price minus the market price. So when we think about the buyer surplus, we're thinking about how much more someone would have paid. So if we're thinking about Homer Simpson, he would have paid $20 for the donut and he got it for $10. Well, he got a surplus of $10. If we think about someone else that would be willing to pay less, 
then they have less of a surplus. If someone was willing to pay $10 and they paid $10, then they have an even. And we're, we're thinking about the whole market, of course. We've got different people willing to pay different amounts. And of course, you might be thinking at this point, wouldn't it be nice if we had some kind of system where we could sell as the seller $20 for Homer and then $10 to someone else who has a, a lower price that they would be willing to purchase for? Uh, we'll, we'll think about ideas like that later if you're thinking about that. We're, we're usually thinking in terms of just one price at this point in time, but uh, that was an interesting concept to think about later. A seller surplus is the market price minus the seller's reservation price, meaning the price that the seller would uh, sell for minus what the market price is because they're price takers within the market is the seller surplus. And of course that will differ uh, between the, the number of sellers. And then the total surplus is the buyer surplus plus the seller surplus. <music>